Brother Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. Glad to be here. Uh, my sponsor's name was Franklin, and he was one of the first speakers at this conference. And I spirit is here. I'm going to try to do what he taught me to do. Number one, I wasn't going to wear this tie. <laughs> but he told me a long time ago, said, Joe, when you're behind that podium, you represent the aid of somebody. So look the best you can. If you got a tie, wear it. I may take it off in a minute, but... <laughs> he also told me one time, he said, Joe, you want to say something before you start talking? I thought he was kidding. Another time we were in a meeting together, and he said, you know, after the meeting, he said, you know, Joe, said, uh, the only way you can say less is talk longer. <laughs> and I thought he was kidding. <laughs> I've learned one thing about the Canadians this weekend. When you see them take their watch off, you know what that means? Nothing. <laughs> Just give you a sense that they're going to quit pretty soon. <laughs> but uh, I would like to say a couple of things before I start talking. And one of them is this. There's a group of people here who I know very, very well and know him for a long time. And uh, they give a big book study on April the 28th and 30th here in this area. These restoration blanks are out there. Uh, give them support. We need people who are carrying the message of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and all areas of AA. We almost lost this one time. And another thing was that uh, Charlie and I did a big book study in Washington, D.C. a couple of months ago. and. For some reason, I felt it was, uh, and I can't say why, but for some reason, I felt it was one of the best big book studies that we've ever done. I told that to these kids, that I call them kids, these young people in St. Louis a, few, a month or so ago, and they said they wanted to settle those tapes, so I brought mine with them so they could do them off, and I also gave them to Roger so he could have them, and they're available over there if you want to look into them. But anyhow, now I'm going to start talking. My name is Joe McAlcoholic, and it's truly by God's grace and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous I found in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm sober today, and for that I'm very, very thankful. And I've been sober uh, ever since I quit drinking. <laughs> and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. And uh, on page 29 of this book, I, they started giving all these books away a while ago, and I got panicky. <laughs> I can't already talk without one of these books in my hand. But on page uh, 29, the second paragraph, says each individual, <clears throat> talking about the personal stories, describes in his own language, from his own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God. And that's what I'm going to try to do tonight. Because it was a long way from the time I come to Alcoholics Anonymous till I established a relationship with God. It was a process. <clears throat> I've been reading this book a long time, and I find myself on about every paragraph in here if I'm willing to do so. Page 18, a little paragraph at the top of the, of the page that tells my whole story. You know, it says in our book that when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. And I didn't know what the word malady meant. Do you? Malady means illness. 
So when the spiritual illness is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. And that's what I'm doing in AA. And my spiritual illness not only means my relationship with God, it means my own moral fiber, which every speaker has mentioned that in some way this weekend. I've heard every one of the speakers, and uh, I'm taking away with me some things that I can think about. I didn't learn a lot of stuff. I heard a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? But it says here on page 18, an illness of this sort, and we've come to believe it an illness, involves over the balance of the way no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, all is sorry for him, and no one is angry or hurt. But not so with the alcoholic illness. For with it goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. It engulfs all whose life touched the sufferers. It brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends, employers, what lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents, and anyone can increase the list. In other words, alcoholism is a family illness. We heard about that today from Al-Anon. It's a family illness. And if you live with one of us very long, you're going to be affected by it abnormally, I have to say. And I look back in my life, and I realize that today that my dad was an alcoholic. He had an obsession to drink. My mother had the obsession to see that he didn't drink. It seemed like every time my dad took a drink, my mother had a personality change. <laughs> we uh, left the farm back in Oklahoma and went out to California and then came back to Tulsa and uh, West Tulsa on the west side of the river where the poor folks lived. <clears throat> my dad was an ice man. He carried ice to people's houses on his back all day long, six days a week. After the end of the week, Saturday night, he'd go down by the bootlegger that's all we had in those days, and buy him a pint of whiskey to come home to have a drink. And I think today my dad deserved a drink after six days of back-breaking work. He ought to have a drink if he wanted one. And my mother saw that $2 taking food away from these five kids that they had. And she was fearful about that. Our whole society was fearful in those days. You remember the 30s, most of you. What happened when we left the farm is it broke up the family unit and everybody went off in every direction, and we were fearful, and our, our whole family was fearful. I didn't know that until I did some inventory later. <clears throat> but my dad's drinking got progressively worse, as we know that it will, and my mother got progressively worse to raising Cain with my dad. And uh, they began to fight and fuss a lot. It scared me, and uh, I was just a little old kid. And eventually my dad's drinking got to be so bad he began to threaten my mother with physically threatening her, verbally threatening her, and she would pull out a gun once in a while and threaten her with it, and it scared me, and I grew up in this. And eventually my dad's drinking got so bad he had to be arrested and took up to Eastern State Hospital in Benita, our local nut house, by the way. And they didn't have any alcoholic treatment facilities in those days, 1949. <clears throat> what they did have was a criminally insane ward. And that's what they did with alcoholics of our type <laughs> in those days. And if you were committed there, you couldn't get out. You had to stay there if you got well. Think about that. <laughs> my dad was there for three years and seven months and 13 days, some of the formidable years of my life. And I began to get a bunch of ideas, emotions, and attitudes which Dr. Jung told Roland was the guiding force of our lives. And I began to get a bunch of ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were 
the force of my life for a long, long time. And I used to hitchhike up there and take him a couple of dollars in the carton of cigarettes, my brother and I. And uh, we'd go in the building three back on the fifth floor, and I saw things back there you're not supposed to see. And we'd walk back to the old 66 highway and hitchhike home. And one of the thoughts came to me one day all by myself without any help from anybody. I said to myself, if I ever get big enough they can't catch me, I'm not going to church any anymore. If God is going to do this to me and us and to hell with him, I'll not be talking to him anymore. No one taught me that. I just learned that. I'm good at that. <laughs> and another thought came to me one day was, you know, if it hurts like this to love people, I'm going to quit loving people. It hurts too bad. So I began to push people out of my life. And I didn't want to be around anybody that I loved because it hurt me. So I quit. And uh, sometimes it, it bothers me even today. Sometimes I have been so much into myself that I can walk right past you and not even see you. Sometimes. And I learned how to do that a long time ago. And another thought came to me was, if anything good is going to happen in my life, it is going to happen because I, all alone, by myself, without any help, made it that way. I was totally self-sufficient. I didn't need God, nothing, or nobody. And I thought those were very brave attitudes on my part for many a year. Uh, by the way, those are not very good coping skills, I found out. Uh, they put you in jail for those kind of ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which they did for me. And in my side of town, there were two kinds of kids that went to school. Uh, those kids that ran home from school, and those kids that ran people home from school. <laughs> and I didn't want them to get me running. I was too afraid that they wouldn't quit. So I became one of those who ran people home from school. Became, became a very mean person doing that. And they put you in jail for that, by the way. Uh, I was out in Arizona one time. I was 15 years old, and I was in this bar, and I used to hustle pool. And I'm uh, pretty good at it. And I got a fight with this fellow out there one night, and I hurt him pretty bad. And they arrested me and put me in jail and committed me to Fort Grant over there, 7 to 15. And uh, that guy died, you'd have a different speaker up here tonight, I can tell you that. I'd still be over there. They took me, later on, they took me from Fort Grant and put me on a bus in Tucson, told me not to ever come back to Arizona again. I was in Arizona over Christmas. <laughs> I remembered that. I didn't pay attention to it, though. I said, if I ever get out of here, I'll not be back to Arizona. I didn't until Christmas time. But anyhow, uh, later on, uh, I got to thinking about sex a lot. <laughs> I almost had brain damage from it. Well, my dad had got out of the nut house now, and he's out in California. And I went to my mom, and I said, Mom, I've been thinking about sex. And she, oh, my God, Benny Joe. That's my name. Scared her. It's a dirty, rotten thing to think about, she said, and you ought to save it for the one you love. <laughs> Sometime I, somehow I didn't believe that. I don't know why. And we had sex education when I went to school, too, except they call it uh, recess. <laughs> but in West Tulsa, Oklahoma, in front of the Jenkins Cafe, we used to hang around out there in the 50s. 
and there was a bunch of wise, intelligent, and experienced men and women of about 15 and 16 years old. <laughs> and they knew all there was to know about it and more than happy to share that with us young kids. <laughs> and they told me what they were doing, some of those guys, and how often they were doing it with two or three different women a night. And my eyes got that big around. <laughs> I've been thinking about that a lot. That's what I wanted to do. Now the fallacy of that is this. I'm sober in Alcoholics Anonymous for about three years before I figured out that they were lying to me. <laughs> At least I hope they were lying to me. Because <laughs> I tried to live up to those ideals and never could. Drinking helped. There are many effects by which we drink and that's one of them. It helps you do things you normally wouldn't do. I thought. But anyhow, that was just another thing. So I had the coping skills of an eight or nine year old boy and I came to AA and I had the sexual knowledge of a, a 12 or 13 year old boy that I learned off the street from people that didn't know any better about it than I did. You think I didn't need to have an inventory? Totally, totally fearful. See, and I didn't know that either until I got into AA. I thought I was a very brave guy. If you uh, come up to me and attack me or I perceive an attack from you, I'd jump right in your face. I thought that was brave. Come to find out it was fearful. I was afraid, very much afraid. I see people today around who are loud and profane and trying to, to intimidate other people and I think I know that guy. He's just like I was. He's scared to death. He can't admit it. So he reacts that way if she does. And that's the way I was. Later on, I was to start dating this little gal, little Indian gal from Oklahoma. Her name was Rose. Oh, by the way, I'm a member of the Cree Nation. Yeah, I was dubbed that here about three years ago out in Red Deer. And Charlie and I both, I was telling some guys about that today. And they, they named us Walking Eagles. <laughs> You'll have to get the answer to that from them. <laughs> I thought that was pretty nice at the time, so I found out. Well, I too full of it to walk is what he meant to say. <laughs> Walking eagle. But I met this little gal named Rose, and uh, she drank a bit like I did, and she might have one or two or three, four if you forced her, then she wanted to quit. She got sleepy. I wanted to go to town after about four. Different. You get in a lot of trouble going to town, by the way. And uh, Rose and I were drinking one night, and uh, and what happened that the next morning I woke up and we got married. <laughs> and she said it was my idea. <laughs> okay. So I'll try to do what's right. And I stayed sober mostly for about two years trying to do what was right. And my money wasn't accumulating like I thought it ought to. And so I began to hang around with some guys who seemingly were like me, but they were more educated than I was. And uh, I thought if I hang around with them, I'll learn how to make some money. But we would go down to the bar in the evening and uh, split a half a pint, three of us, and talk about things and uh, trying to figure out a way to make money. And then we started splitting a pint, and the next thing I know is a fifth, and the next thing I know is all we could drink. And when you do that, you get home later and later and later what I'm trying to say. And I'd come home sometime at 10, 11 o'clock and all my stuff would be laying out in the yard. <laughs> Y'all know what I mean by stuff? 
dirty t-shirts, dirty shorts, shirts that need ironing. They never throw out anything clean. <laughs> Why is that? And she filed for divorce on me and put a restraining order and make off what little money we had. Make me so mad. And after a while, I'd forgive her and go home. Start all over again. Promised her. Promised her I wouldn't drink anymore. How many of you ever promised anybody you'll never do it again? <laughs> now, when an alcoholic makes that kind of promise, and I did that on four occasions, uh, when you make that kind of promise, what do we do? I'll tell you what I did. I pulled out the most useful tool that I had at my disposal, and it's called willpower. And I said, sick em, Will. We're through with that drinking. And you know, those of us who made that, I meant that. I really did meant that. But there's some things that I didn't know. I didn't, hadn't read the doctor's opinion yet. And it talks about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. Once I take a drink, I crave more. If I'm not drinking, I'm thinking about drinking. The obsession of the mind. And in those times that I wasn't drinking and promised I wouldn't drink, all I could do was think about drinking. That's called the obsession of the mind. And it's stronger than my willpower. If you want to know why you, why you pulled out your willpower and it didn't work, it's because the obsession of the mind is stronger than the willpower. And of course, I didn't know that. So I was saying it's over on willpower. And after a while of doing this for a long time, you begin to question your sanity. It's like the book says. And then after a while, you begin to think about committing suicide. And I thought about that too can't drink, you can't keep from drinking. I was in a heck of a mess. Well, the last time she threw my stuff out, I'd been gone about three months. And I was sitting on the bar stool one night, and I was drinking, and I got to thinking. <laughs> right? If you're going to drink, don't think. <laughs> Get you in trouble. And I was sitting there drinking and thinking, and I said, old Rose hadn't seen me in about three months. I bet she's lonely. <laughs> Wouldn't you be? Yeah. So I said, I think I'll go over to my house and visit. Anybody know what I mean by visit? Okay. So we understand each other. I went over to my house to visit and I knocked on the door and she just, I, she just, I just broke in there is what I did. And there sat an old boy in my recliner watching my TV in my house and I'm making payments on all that. Well, what are you going to do? John, what are you going to do? Well, I did. I jumped on that old boy and he liked to beat me to death and on the living room floor. <laughs> threw me out in the yard and told me not to ever come back. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, I lived on that one a long time. And, uh, I said, okay, that's the way she's going to treat me after all I've done for her. I mean, after all I've done to her, I mean, for her. I'm going to just let this divorce go through, which I did. But now I start thinking real good. I was thinking okay before, but now I'm starting to think real good. I said to myself, self, uh, you're going to drink, right? Right. Are you going to find a woman that drinks? You need a woman, right? Right. You're going to find a woman that drinks, right? Those women that don't drink are mean and ugly. 
They throw yourself out in the yard. So I looked all over the bars in Tulsa. It's a great place to look for a wife. And uh, finally I met Phyllis at a place called the Zebra Lounge. <laughs> Lovely place. I can almost smell it now. And, and Phyllis was the queen bee of the Z. Some of you guys know her. She's the gal who took up the collection to play the jukebox. You know her. That's Phyllis, my wife. She'll soon be sober 20, uh, June 26, 30 years, thank God. And I thought, you know. But she had just come out of a, a bad marriage, and I had just come out of a bad marriage, and we met at the bar. And she looked at me and said, you know, Joe, you look like my third husband. <laughs> and I said, well, my God, how many of you had? And she said, two. <laughs> I like that, you know. <laughs> that was her line, so I put my line on her. I said, did it hurt? She said, what? When I said, when you fell out of heaven. <laughs> you little angel. <laughs> yeah. Hey, guys, they go for it every time. <laughs> yeah. You can have that if you want it. And we started uh, drinking and uh, running around. I'll tell you how she drank and I drank. In Tulsa, in those days, the beer bars closed at midnight, and then you had to go to what they call a private club. You used to have to take your own bottle in there and buy it back. I don't understand that, but that's what they did. <laughs> And we'd stay there till 3 or 4, 5 o'clock in the morning, and we'd go down to this 24-hour restaurant that was open in Tulsa, and a bunch of us would meet there and have breakfast, and we'd go to work, never getting any sleep. We could do that in those days. And I liked Phyllis, and I liked, that's the way she drank. That's, I liked her. That's my kind of woman. And we, eventually, we started dating, and then we got married. And now things really go to heck in a handbag. She got this list of things about that long, that this one's not going to do that that other one did. And I've got a list of things this long that this one's not going to do like that other one did. And now we're married and we're starting enforcing our lifts on each other. <laughs> Man, look, it got bad now. I mean, really, I thought it was bad before, but it really got bad this time. We got where well, we couldn't even drink at the same bar without fussing and fighting. <laughs> so we made up a little deal. And 41st Street in Tulsa is kind of the dividing line between north and south. And south of 41st was hers, <laughs> and north of 41st was mine. I don't go over there and mess with her. She don't come over here and mess with me. And we'll meet at home and visit once in a while. <laughs> a good plan, right? Well, on my side of town's a lake, out toward the west. And I bought a mobile home out there. Very nice mobile home. Furnished it well. It was very nice. And I didn't think Phyllis knew anything about this. And uh, one night about 3 o'clock in the morning, there's a bang on the door. And I finally go to the door and I kind of, well, what she did was she just broke in there. <laughs> she and my daughter embarrassed me in front of my girlfriend. <laughs> Cuffed her around a little bit, 
left. The next morning, I left that with all my stuff laying out in the yard. <laughs> she went to the bank, made off what, what little money we had, filed for divorce and restraining order again. <laughs> she did that three times, twice actually. She only admits to doing it twice, but I did it to her one time. It wasn't even my time to file for divorce, but I did. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm going to drink as often as I want to drink, when I want to drink, and I don't care who knows. And I made a decision. Some of you may have made this decision. I said, I have tried and tried and tried to not drink. And I can't not drink. I am not going to try to not drink again. You understand what I mean? I'm going to drink as often as I want to. There's a relief in that. And I did that. And one night, this was in that mobile home, and there was a roof ceiling, kind of like this, a little bigger square. And there was a rat about that long jumped out of that, right on my bed. And I wrestled him around for about 30 minutes or more. <laughs> Finally kicked him off the bed. And I realized my clothes were wringing wet with sweat. I mean, the sheet was almost, it could almost wring it out. Having nightmares, I guess. Eventually, I sold that place, because that kept happening every night. <laughs> and I sold that place for half of what I paid for it just to get rid of it. Rats in there. And uh, I bought some traps about this wide and about that long. The one that hadn't broken my legs stepping around the floor, I know. Never could get rid of them. I moved back to town to a little place there, a nice little apartment. And, uh, oh, by the way, if there's some people come into your group sometime and they're seeing things that you don't see, go along with them, you know, because they're seeing them, I believe. And that's the way I was there. And uh, Saturday, a Saturday, typical day in my life, I woke up Saturday morning and I was sleeping on the couch. Had a brand new bedroom suit in that one bedroom apartment, a nice bedroom suit. <clears throat> too busy to get sheets, pillowcases, towels, soap, toothpaste, things that you need. I was just too busy. So therefore, I didn't shower very often either. A little perfume would stop that. <laughs> well, besides that, it's scary back there. Dark, and no light bulbs in those lamps. It's too busy. I've been eating those uh, little white crosses like they were popcorn for quite a while, and uh, I got you get busy when you do that. And that's the end of that. And uh, I drank that day, passed out two or three times, smoked four or five cigarettes at a time, and eventually went around the bars that I was frequenting at that time. And I was over at a place called the Misty Dawn. <laughs> that's a lovely place. You go up, go into there to go in, and the guy said, you got a gun? I said, no. He said, well, here, take this one. <laughs> well, you need one when you go in there. It's that kind of place. And uh, there's some people who were trying to kill me. They, uh, they owned that bar, and I knew it. And a couple of weeks before that, some people, some friends of mine, had to pull their guns to get me out of there. And two weeks later, I'm back over there. Now, I don't know what kind of insanity that is, but it's insanity. And I remember I'm sitting at the bar, and I've been drinking all day and all that evening. And I'm looking back at it, I feel like I'm about as sober as I am right now. Because alcohol had quit doing for me what I needed to have done for me a long time ago. And I thought them little white things was the answer for a long time. 
But I'm sitting there at the bar, and I just felt like something inside of me was just going to fall out on the floor. And I didn't know what that was. I got up off that bar stool and went out and laid down in my car for a couple hours or so and went back over to my little apartment and sat on that couch where I'd been sleeping and turned on the television, which I did. Makes a little noise, you know. I was scared to death. Had to have a little noise. I didn't sleep back there. Dark. And uh, went to bed. Woke up the next morning. And <clears throat> I started doing some things that uh, I don't do. I was sitting there thinking and I said, boy, I sure would like to get back with Phyllis, get our life back straightened up, and straighten up that deal with little Gail Saul, and just like to eat, the guilt of that almost eat me alive. You know, a lot of people talk about making amends, and uh, I, I wanted to make amends to, to Phyllis and Gail. And uh, I had some real sick times in my drinking, really sick times, physically. I had thrown up three pints of blood one time, and lived over that. You're not supposed to be able to do that, but I did. And that didn't cause me to want to quit drinking. It was a contributing factor, but that wasn't the main reason. I had horrendous hangovers, and those hangovers weren't the reason I wanted to quit drinking. I'll tell you the main reason why I wanted to quit drinking. The guilt, shame, and remorse of the harm I had done other people was eating me alive, and I couldn't ever deal with them. Didn't know what to do. And I wanted to get all this straightened out if I could. And I knew that I couldn't. I knew that if I was going to get all this straightened out, I was going to have to not drink. And I knew that I couldn't not drink. And you're in a heck of a mess. And I was. And I did two things that morning that I don't do, ever. And if you know me, knew me, you knew I wouldn't do these things at that time. The first thing I did I got on my knees beside that couch and I asked God to help me find a way to stay sober, but for the grace of God. And after a couple of hours, it looked like God wasn't going to help me. And I remember my little friend George, a little black guy, that he and I were in a service together. And about five years before this, he told me that he was going to AA. And I called George. And I said, George, you still going to AA? And he said he was. And I said, George, I need help. It's another thing I don't do. See, I don't need God, nothing, or nobody. But that morning, I needed God, and I needed other people. And I said, George, would you help me? And he came over to my house, and he stayed with me the next three days, sobered me up. I weighed about 130 pounds in those days. You can tell I've been somewhere for a while. <laughs> and I didn't know then what I know today. That's the very best that Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer. If I think uh, we talked about that the other night, people are missing out on the best thing in life in AA is having someone set up with a drunk and sit there with him. And he did that for me and wiped the sweat off the top of my face. And I was sick. Helped me to the bathroom so I could throw up every once in a while and uh, just helped me, talked to me. And then three days later on Tuesday night, he takes me to my very first AA meeting. And I went to my first meeting. I began to look around the rooms. And first thing happened was this. I said to myself, what's a nice guy like me doing in a place like this with people like me? And therein lies the problem. Sunday morning, I was hopeless and helpless and powerless over alcohol. 
three days of not drinking, that old, I don't need God, nothing or nobody begin to come back alive. And therein lies the problem. How do you deal with that? And so I went to meetings. I went to meetings. I went to meetings. Went to a lot of meetings. Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous supported me. They support me. They can't help me stay sober, but they can support me, you see, in staying sober. And they did that. But the reason they can't help me is because they're as powerless over alcohol as I am, collectively. But they can support me, and they did that for a long time. And finally, George said to me, he said, Joe, you have a real idea, real trouble about this idea about God. Now, see, I don't tell anybody about that Sunday morning. I'm ashamed of it at that time. And I didn't tell George. He said, you're having a hard time with this God idea about God. I said, George, I'm having a terrible time. He said, well, why don't you do what he had done and some other people that he knew had done, and maybe it would it helped them, maybe it would help you. And I said, what's that? So he had this book, and he said, on page 46 of this book, it says here, it says, yes, we have agnostic temperament had these thoughts and experiences. But let's make haste to reassure you we found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice, those old ideas that I come in here with, prejudice, and express even the willingness to believe in the power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results. Even though it was impossible for any of us to fully divine or comprehend that power which is God. He said, why don't you go home tonight, get you a pencil and a piece of paper, and forget what you think you know about God, that of a seven-year-old boy, and if you could make God and realize you can't, but if you could, what would you want it to be? <laughs> now, see, I didn't know you could do that. Out there in Oklahoma, down there in Oklahoma, you go to hell for that. You will. Still today. You can't do that. But George gave me permission to do that. And I guess I needed that permission. I remember one time, a long time ago, when I was with Rose, she was always going to church down there, and I threw a little sober spell one time and went to see her preacher trying to get back home. That's the reason I was over there. And, uh, but I wasn't, really wasn't kidding. And I sat down across the table from that preacher, and he looked right at me. And he said, Joe, you must, and boy, he emphasized that word must. You must have faith in these things, and he told me what they were. And I just looked at him. How can you have faith in something that you don't even believe? He was telling me to have faith. And I didn't even believe what he was talking about. The dilemma. See, I got up and left there and went on drinking for another number of years. But he gave, George gave me permission to have a God of my own understanding. And our book says, Much to our relief, we discovered we did not need to consider another's conception of God, our own conception, however inadequate was sufficient to make the approach and affect the contact with him. Oh, one old idea cast aside, a new one began to be accepted. Having a God of my own understanding. Today I know why that works so well, don't you? I have to have my own conception. Have you ever had any trouble with your own conception of anything? <laughs> but it's my idea, it's got to be good, right? I don't have any trouble with that. And looking back at that experience now, I realize I never had any trouble with God. I had trouble with other people's idea about it and them trying to force it on me and telling me I must believe a certain way. You see? And this book gives me permission 
to start at a much simpler level, and I needed a simpler level because I was quite simple <laughs> that time. This thing's too complicated. Just drink enough whiskey. You'll get simple enough to understand it, I bet you. <laughs> Happened for me. And I said, George, you mean I got to find God? And he said, Joe, God's not lost. <laughs> my book says, as soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, it's really the universe underlying the totality things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. We found that God do, does not make too hard a terms with those who seek him. That's the key word, seek. To us, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all men. See, it's not in the finding for me. It's in the seeking. And if I will seek God in my life, he will disclose himself to me. It's in the seeking. It's not in the finding. And for 32 years now, I've been trying to seek God into my life. And every year that goes by, my will changes, which is my thinking, my life changes, which is my actions, and my understanding of God changes. Because I'm growing spiritually, you see. And I never will understand God. And if you ever meet anybody who understands God, run. <laughs> I don't understand. I know that God is. Franklin said, if you can't find a power greater than yourself, at least find one other than yourself. You see? And I can do that. This chapter, We Agnostic, is probably one of the best pieces of spiritual information that's ever been written. I'll tell you who told me that. There was a fellow named Father Bill Wilson. Some of you may have known Father Bill. Hope you did. Father Bill was a very uh, exceptional young man in Ireland. Good student. They took him from Ireland and put him into the University of Rome. And he was to stay there for 30 years, studying. Got three doctorates while he was there. You know he read a lot of spiritual material. You had to. Eventually, uh, Father Bill got to drinking some of that sacramental wine, a little too much of it. They had to banish him, him at the age of 45 years old. And you know where they sent him to for punishment? La Jolla, California. <laughs> Anybody here ever been to La Jolla? Okay, one of the most beautiful little cities in the world, I guess. But that's where they sent him for punishment. And eventually he gets sober. Eventually he becomes a student of this book. Eventually, through the chapter we agnostic, he came to believe in the power greater than himself, having been at the University of Rome for 30 years. And he said, this chapter we agnostic is the most powerful piece of information that he had ever read. He said, this chapter in this We Agnostic is not put in here to tell us that there's any particular type of God or any particular religion. He said, this chapter We Agnostic is in here for one thing, to open up my mind to the possibilities. And if I do that, then God will, teach, will disclose himself to me, and then I would have a power greater than myself. That no one, he said, no one, including the Pope, could improve upon. And I believe Father Bill. And that's exactly what this chapter is about. And I love this chapter we agnostic because it was a process by which I had to go through. He said, when you read things in there, just question, what do they mean to you? What does that mean to me? How can I apply that to me? What does that say to me always? I need to know where God was too. I didn't know. At times in my early sobriety, I looked all over, looked out there, looked over here, looked down there, everywhere. Where's God?
said, no. This book tells me. There was a little guy in a halfway house that asked me to be his sponsor a long time ago. And he said, uh, what step are you going to start me out on? <laughs> I said, well, you know, he'd been in and out of here a long time. I said, I'm not going to start you out on the step. I'm going to start you out on a tradition. Tradition seven, precisely. I want you to be fully self-supporting through your own contributions. <laughs> We're going to get you a job so you can get out of this halfway house and not a good place for you to be or anybody else. Easy for you to say, he said. If I had a car, I could find me a job. I said, I'll help you find a job. We went back and forth, found him a job. I took him back and forth to work for two or three weeks. Got two or three paychecks. Finally got him a car and got out of there. But one morning he told me a story that was to change my life. And the story went like this, the way he told it. He said there was these three wise men from the east, and they had stolen from man and woman the crown of life, the thing that would make us the happiest. Took it away from them. And he said, now that well, they've got it away from them, what are we going to do with it? One of them said, well, we'll take it to the highest mountain on the face of the earth, and we'll hide, hide it in the highest crevice, and they'll never be able to find it there. You know, they said, yeah, but you know how they are. They'll hunt, and they'll search, and they'll eventually find it. Another one said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take it to the deepest crevice in the ocean and hide it there, and they'll never be able to find it there. They said, yeah, but you know how they are. They'll hunt, and they'll search, and they'll eventually find it. The third one said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll hide it within themselves, and they'll never think about looking for it there. How true. And our book says that actually we were fooling ourselves. For deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It's there. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some, some form or other it's there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. It's just always been there. As much as I've tried to deny it, it's just there. We're just born with it. We finally saw that faith in some kind of a God was a part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found a great reality deep down within us. And the last analysis only there that he may be found is so with us. God is within me, within you, in there, out there. God is everything or else he's nothing. He's everything, everywhere. And I've come to know that today. God is within me. And you know him. I know you know him. If you're like me, I'd be getting ready to do something. The little voice within say, Joseph, I was you, I wouldn't do that. But I don't pay any attention to that little voice. I go ahead and do it anyway. Get in all kinds of trouble. And that same little voice would say, Hey, I told you not to do that. Have you heard that little voice? Well, to me, that's God talking to me and telling me how to live my life if I listen to it. But I put that aside many years ago and I said, I don't need God. I'm going to live it the way I'm going to live it. Got into all kinds of trouble. Deep down inside, every man, woman, and child was fundamental idea of God. Just there was one day. We had an atheist one time in our group, in several. And I said, I bet you if I take you to that 55-story building downtown there and throw you off the side of it, I bet you'll holler, oh God, before you get the signal. <laughs> you know why? Because it's just there. We'll holler, oh God. This next little paragraph sums up this whole chapter. We can only clear the ground a bit if our testimony, our story, 
help sweep away prejudice, old ideas, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself. Then, if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. Get this. With this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. You'll have a God of your own understanding that nobody but nobody but nobody can improve upon. It'll be your own understanding. That's what Father Bill told me. That's exactly what happened to me. Thank God. Thank God. I could buy that. I can buy. I had trouble with this idea about God. I could buy that. You know? Page 62. He said, this the how and why of it. Instruction. First of all, we had to plan God. It didn't work. I was playing God in my life. I didn't need God nothing to nobody. I was the God in my life. I ran my ship. <coughs> didn't work. Then next we decided hereafter in this drama life, God was going to be our director. Not our suggester, but our director. We'll let God direct my life. He's the principal, we're his agents. He's the father, we're his children. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant art through which we passed the freedom. And what was that? What concept? He's the principal, we're the agent. He's the father, we're the children. Most good ideas are simple. He's the boss, I work for him. And I read in that other big, big book one time when I was sober, and it said in there that he worked for six days and then he rested. To my knowledge, he never did go back to work anymore. It looks to me like there's going to be work being done around here. It's going to be me. See, I almost missed that little idea. And I used to pray in those days when I first started trying to learn how. I didn't know. I said, God, give me this, and God, give me that, and get me a new, new car and make more money and a better job and, and uh, you know, things like that. And if I forgot to ask you for anything, let me have that too. <laughs> Very selfish prayer. You can see why that won't work. He's the principal. We're the agent. He's the father. We're his children. Most good ideas are simple. I almost missed that. A prayer we say in closing up each meeting says, Our Father. What does that mean? It means the Father of us all. We're his children. Every one of us. He's the Father. We're the children. If I hurt you, I'm hurting me. I know that today. Page 63 said, When we sincerely took such a position, that one, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer, being all-powerful. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. I thought he was supposed to perform my work well. But you see, he's the father, we're the children. He's the principal, we're the agent. Almost missed that. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in our little selves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. See, I'd always been a taker. Takers are losers. Not only in AA, but in life. Takers are losers. You're looking at one. See, I was a loser. I was a taker. Man, if it's too big to steal, I'd lay down the side and claim it. That's mine. <laughs> Takers are losers. See? Today I'm trying to see what I can contribute to life. Makes it a whole lot easier. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, 
we begin to lose our fears today, tomorrow, or the hereafter, we were reborn. And God, I used to hate that idea about being reborn. Ooh. About three blocks up from my house at that time, there's a little church up there, and they would come up to my house on Monday night knocking on the door, want to talk to me about being reborn. I'm drinking, watching Monday night football. <laughs> Boy, this is Monday night. What are you guys doing over here? Bothering me. Get your, I mean, this is a nice version. Get yourself out of here and go on down the street and peddle your paper someplace. Leave me alone. I'm doing fine. See, I didn't like that idea about being reborn. And after I'd been sober for a while, reading in that other big book, book big book, there was a guy in here named Nicodemus. He's just like me, dumb as a rock. I mean, really dumb. And he was talking to that guy who had been talking about being reborn. He said, you're talking about reborn, being reborn? What do you mean? You mean I have to go back into my mother's womb and be reborn? Dumb. And he looked at him like my sponsors have looked at me on many occasions, shook their head. How dumb are you, anyway? Don't you know you can't do that? When I'm talking, did you go to school? Did anybody teach you anything? Don't you know when they're talking about being reborn, they're talking about the renewing of your mind. Reborn, not in the body, but in the mind. Old ideas, old emotions and attitudes, which were the guiding force of life these people that suddenly cast to one side. And a whole new set of motives begin to dominate. I was being reborn, not in the body, but in the mind. I don't think like I used to think. Thank God. I'm, I'm, being, I'm different. I'm different. We're, we're lucky in this room to have two lives in one, that old life and this life. And this life is a whole lot better, I can tell you. I believe in destiny. I talked about that in one day. I believe that God has a destiny for every individual in this room. Find out what it is to be that and do that. And I have found my destiny. And I believe that if I do what God intends for me to do, then my life will be beautiful and has been and is. I'm living today better than I've ever lived in my life. Doing things I never dreamed of doing but always wanted to do. You see, my wife and I travel crisscross the country from uh, Vancouver to St. John's, Newfoundland. From Key West, Florida to Alaska. Back and forth. All over the country the last two or three years. And I love our country. We got the best country in the world, Canada and the U.S. We do. And every time I make a curve and see another beautiful scenery, and I bet I've seen a thousand of them, I say, Phyllis, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? We may be in the desert. It's beautiful in the desert. It's beautiful in the mountains. It's beautiful on the plains. I went fishing one time up uh, way up north of Prince Albert. Stopped by and seen old seeds on my way. And uh, him and his, his mom had breakfast with us. But it was beautiful up there. Absolutely gorgeous. We drove through Saskatchewan and all the wheat fields. And I told Phyllis, I said, you know what? I can see all the way till tomorrow. <laughs> Can't you? When you're there, you can see all the way till tomorrow. The blue sky and the beautiful scenery and the golden sky. It's gorgeous. Beautiful. Everything's beautiful. So I'm looking at them with different eyes. And they're beautiful. Been very, very blessed. 
I've been blessed to know some of the best people in AA. Some of them are right here in this room, in this area. I know them. I know how they do. I know what they do. And I want to do what they do. And I do. Beautiful deal. With this kind of idea, I can do that third step now. I can, I can understand what they were talking about. That little church up there that I used to cuss those guys at. I knew what they did up there on Sunday morning. They'll be doing it tomorrow morning. They always do. And then what they want people to do, basically, is about 11 o'clock. They want people to do the third step prayer, basically. And then that next Sunday, I couldn't wait to get there. Don't know why I didn't go earlier, but I went on Sunday. And I got there about two or three minutes before 11. You know, I didn't want to get there too early. I might hear something would help. <laughs> but I got there about two or three minutes before 11. And sure enough, they asked people to do the third step prayer, basically. And I went down there as humbly and sincerely and as honestly as I know how to do anything. And this is what I said. I said, God, I offer myself to you to build with me and do as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulty that victory over them may bear witness to those that I would help with your power, your love, and your way of life. May I do your will always. And I don't know what happened that morning. I'm not smart enough to know. But from that day until this day, my life's different. It's been like all them 34 years I was walking on the dark side of the street and all of a sudden I'm on the sunny side of the street. Living good. Doing good. I <clears throat> went over to see my mother that afternoon because I was divorced again. She knew that. Invited me over for dinner. And I went over to see her and she said, Benny Joe, she forgot my name. Benny Joe? said, uh, what's different about you? <clears throat> and I told her what I'd done that morning. And uh, she was real happy about that. That's all she ever wanted for her kids was to live the way she did. And her religion sustained her all her life. And she wanted me to have that. <clears throat> Some weeks later, I went over to see Phyllis. Uh, prior to this, I used to call over to my house and my little daughter would just hang up the phone. Phyllis would just hang up the phone. They won't talk to me. But Phyllis answered the phone. I said, can I come over just for a few minutes? And she said, yes. Now, is that odd? Is that God? And so I went over, and I had a cup of coffee. And, I, she, and she will tell you this story if she ever tells you, if you ever hear it. She said, I was her Abby. She said, there was something about my eyes. I was inexplicably different. What had happened? They wanted to know what happened to you. So I said, what's happened to you? And I said, well, I've gone to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm staying sober, and I'm trying to get out of my life straightened out. And I tried to make some amends to her, and of course, she wouldn't hear to it. It's okay. There's another story in that big, big book. They asked that guy, I said, what happened to you? She said, I want you to I said, what happened to you? He said, I don't know. He said, I was blind, and now I can see. I was a drunk, and now I'm sober. Now, how do you straighten out your life? I want to straighten out my life. That guilt, shame, and remorse was killing me. I tried to, like I said, all that sickness that I had when drinking wasn't the reason I wanted to get sober. It was because of the guilt, shame, and remorse that I had as a result of harm I'd done other people. And I tried to. My book says, mumbling off of a few words, are like, I'm sorry, it won't cut it. No, really. And I did that. I said, I'm sorry. I've heard that before many times. And uh, 
started his face over and started going to meetings again. I mean, he always went to meetings. And eventually I invited Phyllis to, to come with me to a conference down in Shreveport, Louisiana. She went reluctantly, but she was wondering, too, what I was up to. And we went down there, and there was a lady talking about like you did this morning. And I looked over at Phyllis, and she was crying her eyes out. She was identifying. You know, the identification is so important in AA. This lady was identifying with my wife was identifying with this lady. She was crying. And, that, and I tried to make her cry many times and couldn't do it. <laughs> I said, boy, there's something powerful here, you know. And uh, eventually, Phyllis, two and a half years later, coming back. I'll tell you another little story about that. Uh, we were living together. I wasn't going to get married again until we were sure. And uh, anyhow, I bought a little business for my daughter, but she didn't take hold of very well, her husband. And Phyllis went out there to have to work, and uh, she drank after we closed up that little business. And my staying sober was bothering her, and her staying drunk was bothering me. And I told Franklin, I said, Franklin, I'm going to have to leave, Phyllis. And he said, well, Joe, you don't know how to leave. <laughs> I said, yes, I do. Left many times. He said, yeah, but you always come back. Why is that? He said, I'll tell you, did you all, when you left, did you uh, try to take the car with you? Yeah. Did you want to bring the house with you and show her outside? Yeah. Do you want to get all the furniture? Yeah. All the money out of the bank? Yeah. He said, that's the reason why you kept coming back. He said, if you're going to leave, you're going to have to leave it all there. Now, that'll give you brain damage. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you'll have to pray about it. Franklin believed in a lot of prayer. Basically what this book's all about, because I know today you can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. You can't think your way out of it. He said, Joe, the two most important things about prayer is this. One is you start, and the other is you continue. Two most important things. As I look back, every time I pray, I change just a little bit. As the years go by, I feel lot. I'm not what I used to be. So I started praying about the situation. And one day, a month or two months later, I don't know how long it was, it seemed like a good idea to sell that business and give to Phyllis the money, the house, everything, and me just walk away with nothing. Felt good. I can do this. Sold that little business on a Tuesday. We worked till Saturday. Got my little check, $25,000, put it in that pocket. Tomorrow morning, I'm leaving. We went to meeting that night. And they have a little thing, I'm sure you do here, where they hand out those little sobriety chips. Well, Phyllis got up and got her sobriety chip that night. Well, that made me mad. <laughs> well, how are you going to leave a woman that just got her sobriety chip? <laughs> well, I laid awake all night thinking about how to do that. <laughs> well, you can't. And, of course, the moral of that story is God can't even help me until I turn loose. And I can't turn loose. I can only pray for God's will to be done in my life, and whatever it is, and to do it willingly. Then I turn loose, and then he can help me. What happened there? And so Phil and I have grown in this program together. Uh, tell you one little story about Gail, my little daughter. She had these two or three grandchildren for, for us. I wasn't a good father. never was a good father. I'm a good grandfather, I can tell you that. 
You know how to be a good grandfather? Give him everything you want. <laughs> and I'm a good one. She moved off to Ohio and took my, I mean, I didn't mind she and Jim moving, but they took my grandkids with them. I minded that. And uh, one night she called me and something happened to her sister-in-law and died young, 32 years old for some reason, and they don't know why, just, just sick and died. Left two little children with her, uh, her, her husband's brother. And I guess that really touched Gail. She called me one night and she said, Papa, if something would happen to Jim and I, would you and Mom take the kids? That's when I knew it was okay with us. Living sober, doing the right thing, being there. I was right there every time one of those kids was born. I'm right there. I'm taking care of business. I'm trying to do everything I can do. <clears throat> All through their life, I've tried to do that. Maybe over help but and today we're good friends, and she loves me, and I love her. Had my uh, third great grandchild yesterday morning. Yeah. Seven pounds and eight ounces. Can't wait to get back home. Get my hands on him. Now, Phyllis, another story. Uh, I apologize to her for that incident that we had. And I kept going to meetings, staying sober, doing the right thing. Nine years later, I'm at the back of the room one night shaking hands with people, and I turn around, and here's the, the lady of the mobile home incident. I looked over at the coffee pot, and Phyllis was getting a cup of coffee. She looked over her shoulder. I was not having a good time. <laughs> and some of the guys knew the situation, and later they said, what did Phyllis say? I said, nothing, for about two weeks. <laughs> we go to some other meetings, and here's the lady. Some other meetings, and here's the lady. She's trying to get sober. And uh, one night, Phyllis began to talk ugly to me. You know how they do. <laughs> and I began to pay the price again. The guilt, shame, and remorse began to come back inside of me. Oh, no, I don't like that. Finally, 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 after we were able to talk about that situation, I said, Phyllis, I have already paid every way you can pay, financially, spiritually, mentally, every way you can pay for that deal. And what I'm trying to tell you is I'm not paying no more. It's kind of like a last month's electric bill. I paid it, and I'm not going to pay that one no more. See, someday in sobriety, you have to quit paying. After we've done all we can do, we have to quit paying. They'll let us pay forever if we shall pay. <laughs> Guilt, shame, and remorse forever is a long time. And I said, you've got a problem with that lady, and I don't. I suggest you probably ought to get it fixed somehow. Well, they went to lunch later. I don't know what was said. I don't want to know. No, I'm not doing it. But she did tell her one thing. She said, the AA is big enough for the both of us. But our group isn't big enough for the both of us. There's lots of groups out there, she told me. And that thing got straightened up. And I don't know what happened to that lady. But we got over that deal. And many, many more that I could talk about. Don't mean nothing. <laughs> so making amends is good for me. Our life is back together. Thank God. 
and we don't delve into those things anymore. As there's things that she's done that I could make her pay too. I don't make her pay. She don't make me pay. We live good. We live real good today. Thank God. Can't wait to get back home. Back in my drinking days, I couldn't wait to get away from home. And now I'm trying to get back home. I'm trying to find something here in this book. On set 10. So this all brings us to set 10, the promises right after the promises. The promises, by the way, are the best description of a person that's being reborn of anybody I've ever seen. If you're experiencing those promises in the head and the heart, you're different. You've been reborn. See, I came in here restless, irritable, discontented, full of guilt, shame, and remorse. Remember when you knew they said if you don't drink, you're going to feel better? Well, you're going to feel better, all right. You're going to feel resentment better. You feel anger better. <laughs> See, we don't have the alcohol to kill the pain. That's why we have to do these things to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Bill, you read, worked the steps within two or three days while he was in the hospital. Dr. Bob took a drink of beer that morning and went and performed an operation, came home late that night. He'd been out making a mess. How long do you have to be sober before you work the steps? Not very long. Have to do it quickly as possible, though. Nobody that I've ever known in AA, and I've known a lot of people who have done them perfectly, do the best we can at the time. And it will get some relief. We need relief of that guilt, shame, remorse, and resentment. Otherwise, we're going to drink again. It was way back when I had a little problem. A drink changed the way I thought and the way that I felt. And that was recorded up here on this heart. Still there. And the reason it's there is because every time you come up on the same situation, you don't have to go look for another solution. It's already here. Take a drink. So I had to find other solutions, you see. I used that willpower I told you. I didn't know about the obsession of the mind. There's things that I didn't know anything about. This book talks on two different occasions about being ignorant. Back of them is a world of misunderstanding and ignorance. A lot of people would have us to believe that uh, we're into denial. I'm not into denial, never have been. I've been into ignorance though all my life. See, I didn't know that I didn't know. What was I going to learn these things? I hadn't been to AA. They didn't talk about these things in the bars that I went to. <laughs> so I didn't know. I said, I didn't know. Now I know. When you know better, you do better. And I know better. I'm trying to read one more thing here. I don't have my own book here. So it says on the chapter we agnostic in the beginning, I'm going to close with this. In the preceding chapters, you've learned something of alcoholism. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. Non-alcoholics don't have the allergy of the body, nor do they have the obsession of the mind. So they're normal people. They're at ease with alcohol. But those of us who are dis-ease or at ease, it's the people who, nine people who can drink safely, we're the one who can't drink safely, so we're determined to be at dis-ease, uneasy, dis-ease. By the way, no place in our literature except one place that talks about alcoholism being a disease. Do you know that? All that kind of treatment was designed. Bill said that's continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a malady. Malady is an illness. It is an illness, a spiritual illness. A spiritual illness requires a spiritual solution. Can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. It can't be done. 
no amount, you've heard already, no amount of reading those windy books and thinking positive books will help us. Good information, no doubt, but that will not cure alcoholism. Good information. If, when you honestly want to, you cannot quit entirely, that's because of the obsession of the mind, or if when drinking you have little control of the amount you take, that's because of the allergy of the body. Once we take a drink, we crave more. You may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Now, willpower didn't work. Why? Because the obsession of the mind is stronger than the will. What is stronger than the obsession of the mind? He who made it. God. We may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Dr. Jung told Roland Hazard way back when. And that's the difference in, in the little seconds and inches that I talk about sometimes. But Roland went over there and stayed over there for a year. Got drunk on his way home. Went back. And he said, well, why can't I quit drinking? He said, Roland, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. He said, is there no exceptions for people like me? He said, yes, there is. He said, here and there once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called Bible spiritual experiences. To me, these things are phenomena. I don't understand them, but I know they exist. I suggest that you go back home. Because the psychiatry has done all it can, I've done all it can do for you, he said. I think you go, ought to go back home and find a spiritual way of living. He said, that'd be locked up or profoundly insane. He went back home, we know, and joined the Oxford with first century Christianity, carried that message eventually to every Thatcher. Roland's family was so happy that he was staying sober, they sent him to Vermont to their summer place they had up there for a little vacation. And while he was there, a friend of his, Zebra Graves, and he began to go to Oxford Group meetings. And they heard of Ebbett being in jail. They went over to Eden and interceded on behalf of the judge. The judge, his name happened to be Graves, Zebra's father. And the judge was so happy that his son was staying sober through the Oxford group, and he released Ebby to their care. A little, if those things don't happen, we're not going to be sitting here tonight. Bill walking through that Mayflower Hotel, I've thought about this a lot. Been there. See that just as plain as that, that telephone booth is sitting there just right now. Someone took, a, took the phone out of there several times and had to replace it, but it's still there. I make a decision. Do I go into that bar and have a drink? Would I go in that phone booth and try to find me a drunk to work with? Seconds and inches. If it's up to a guy like me, I'm in the bar, and you're not sitting here. If those things don't happen, there's no Alcoholics Anonymous. All those people are gone now. I believe God picked every one of them to do a certain job. I think he's picking people today. Find out what that is for you and do it, and you'll be very, very happy. And that's the way it's been for me. And uh, thank you very much for allowing me the privilege of being here. I, it's been a great thing. I, I've needed, I needed to be here. I needed to listen. You know, there's always a paradox in AA, isn't it? Everything's backwards from what I thought it was. Some of you may not know what a paradox is. But I'll tell you. Have you ever called your sponsor so you could listen? <laughs> That's a paradox. <laughs> but I need to be here 
to listen. And I've heard things from these speakers that have helped me. And I'm going to go back home and listen to those tapes and make sure I understand and try to bring that into my experience. That's what we do for each other. Again, thank you very much. Appreciate it.